He has risen. He has risen. It was 7 a.m. And his face was throbbing as his beard had been plucked out. And his eyes swollen as he received backhands from the Jewish guards. And there the innocent was on trial for the guilty. He stood before a man named Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor. And there he was in the praetorium, the judgment seat. And Pontius cried out, I find no fault in him. And when he found that Jesus was from Galilee, he wanted nothing to do with them. So he sends them to Jesus' now fourth trial, a man to the name of King Herod. And King Herod wanted Jesus to perform miracles. King Herod looked at Jesus, nothing more than a circus clown. And when Jesus wouldn't buy in, and he remained silent before his accusers, Herod sends him back to Pilate for now his fifth trial. And it's there that Pilate and Herod again proclaim, I find no fault in him. But I know it is a custom of you Jews to release one prisoner on Passover. And here he is, king of the Jews. But the peaceful protest began to turn unpeaceful. And there the crowd began to get incited with violence. And they cry out, we want Barabbas, free Barabbas. And they began to yell, crucify him, crucify him. And there Pontius Pilate says, shall I crucify your king, the king of the Jews? And again they yelled, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate had a plan. If I can just beat him hard enough, maybe the crowd will have sympathy for him. So Pilate commanded that Jesus be scourged. And there he got multiple guards who were trained with the whip. It was a Roman cat of nine tails, which was specifically meant to debone flesh from the skeletal system. Their whips with at the end of it with sharpened glass, sharpened bone and ball bearings were tied. The Roman soldiers would tie Jesus to a log and they would begin to flog him. One whip, two whips, 10 whips, 20 whips, 30 whips, 39 lashes from trained soldiers, and there Jesus' body would be ripped to shreds. Most men died during this time as their intestines would spill out their back end. But Jesus had an appointment with the cross. And there the beaten Lord was untied, and there uh, Pilate says, shall I free him? And they began to cry all the more, crucify him. And Pilate says, I wash my hands with him. Go ahead and you crucify him yourself. And there an old rugged cross was put on the back of our beaten Lord. And there with Jesus bleeding out, he couldn't sustain the weight. And there Simon of Cyrene was commanded to carry the cross up a mount called Golgotha, known as Calvary or the place of the skull. It is now 9 a.m. and the Old rugged crosses laid horizontal on the ground, and there Jesus is laid on it. Roman soldiers would grab ropes, tie them to his hands and to his feet, and they would begin to stretch, sometimes with horses, to the maximum capacity to where even the, the uh, hips and the shoulders would become dislocated. 
And at maximum tension, a Roman soldier with a hammer and nine-inch iron nails would begin to plow the, the nails into the cross, bone-breaking and iron into wood. And there our Lord was pinned to the cross. The cross was then hoisted up, and there on either side of him were criminals, and the crowds began to chant and to cheer and blaspheme the Lord. It is now 9 to 12. And during this time, there's blackout. There's blasphemy. Jesus thirsts. Jesus is looking out to the crowd. Jesus asks the Father to forgive him. And right around noon, he says, it is finished. He gives up his ghost and he dies. There was a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. He goes to Pontius Pilate and he asks and pleads, can I please take down the body? Before the body was taken down, a Roman soldier slams a spear into his side, piercing the Lord's heart, and out comes blood and water, a sign that he actually uh, suffocated to death on the cross. After the body's taken down, a man named Nicodemus and Joseph, they begin to wash the body, they begin to wrap the body in linen, and they begin to put ointment on the body, and they bury him in a tomb. The stone is rolled, the the tomb is sealed, the Roman guards are put in place, many soldiers, and there we have a dead Jesus. Now, if the story ended there, we wouldn't be here this morning. But Jesus didn't stay dead. And one of the greatest testaments and testimonies to the risen Lord is eyewitness testimony. You see, if I commit a crime and there's one eyewitness, two eyewitnesses, five eyewitnesses, I may as well hold the smoking gun. Jesus had over 500 eyewitness testimonies that he actually rose again from the dead. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to look at some of the eyewitness testimony of the risen Savior. In Matthew chapter 28, we're going to take the whole chapter, verses 1 through verse 20. And we're going to look at four groups that report on the resurrection. And they are all very different, and they are all very unique in their testimony. And together they comprise a very Loctite argument that Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead. So Matthew chapter 28, we're going to look at these four groups, beginning with number one, the angelic reports. We have reports from the angels that Jesus rose from the dead. We have the report from women at the tomb that Jesus rose from the dead. We have report from the Roman guards that the tomb was empty. And we have report from his disciples that Jesus rose from the dead. All very unique groups, all testifying the very same thing. So Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. 
He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he is lying, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now we're going back to verse 1. Now after the Sabbath. Does anybody know when Jewish Sabbath takes place? What the times and the days are? There you go, Monique and John said it. It starts actually at right around 6, 7 p.m. or sunset on Friday. And it ends at sunset on Saturday. So for us, our new day is midnight, which doesn't really make sense. It's bam smack in the middle of the night. The Jews, it's from sunset to sunset. And so you have Jesus crucified, and then you have Shabbat or Sabbath that starts at 6 p.m. on that Friday, and it carries all the way to Saturday at 6 p.m., and then you have the new day, which we know as the first day of the week or what? Sunday. So people ask, why don't us as Christians, why don't we hold to the Sabbath like the Jews? And this is the primary reason right here. When did the ladies go to the tomb? It says, now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. So that is what day of the week? Sunday at what time? In the morning. Why does the church gather on Sundays at morning? Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the precedence throughout the early church and the apostles' teaching is the gathering together of the saints on the first day of the week, or Sunday. So here we have Sunday morning, Jesus has been laid in the tomb three Jewish days, and it happens that toward the first day of the week, we have Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. So keep your finger there and just go right on over to the next book, to Mark chapter 16. Because we have four different eyewitness testimonies or four different accounts of the resurrection. And it's good to just put all the details together. So Mark chapter 16, we have the exact same event that Matthew's commentating on. And he gives us a little more insight. Mark 16 verses 1 through 3. Now when Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? So how many women do we actually have here at the tomb? We have three. We have one Mary Magdalene. Does anybody remember her from the Gospels? She was a very unique individual because she was possessed with seven demons. And Jesus cast those seven, seven demons out and she falls in love with the Lord and she becomes a disciple, a follower of Christ. And so now from that point on, she goes from demon possessed to a lover of the Lord and she's following after him. Magdalai was a place near the coast in Galilee and it was known for prostitution. Now, it doesn't say that she was a prostitute, but many scholars kind of joined the two together. She was a prostitute. She was also demon-possessed, and the Lord saved her out of that lifestyle. Interesting about Mary Magdalene. She's the very first human being to see the resurrected Lord. Jesus doesn't appear to Peter. He doesn't appear to John. 
any of the apostles, not even his own mother. The very first person he appears to is this woman, Mary Magdalene. Then we have two other people who then are eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Mary, the mother of James. Now, this is James the Younger. She was married to a guy named Alphaeus, and he was one of the apostles. So when you look at the 12 apostles, you'll see James, the son of Alphaeus. This is his mom. She was there at the tomb. And then you have the third woman, Salome. Anybody know who her two sons were? They were known as the sons of thunder. Who? James and John. Remember, John's the guy that wrote a gospel named the Gospel of John. Good job, John. And he also wrote the first and second and third John, and he also wrote another book at the very end of the Bible called Revelation. This is their mom. This is the same woman that said, Lord, remember my sons in your kingdom. Can they sit on your left hand and on your right? Imagine the shock when she's looking at the cross and she sees two criminals to the left and the right of Jesus. Imagine her shock. I don't want my sons there. But there she is. And all three of these women actually saw the crucifixion. They saw the burial. And here they are all white eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Now, they're going to the tomb and they have faith, but they don't have saving faith. And what I mean by that is they're going to anoint the body. So if they're anointing the body, do they believe Jesus has risen from the dead or that he is still dead? They don't have enough saving faith to believe in the resurrection. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. However, they have faith because they're there going and they are saying, how are we going to get to him? The stone is there. The seal is there. The Roman guards are there. They have absolutely no idea how they're going to get to the body, yet they have the spices and they're going to anoint the body. So there is definitely faith there. So what happens? Matthew 28 in verse 2. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So here we have the angel, and he is described in Matthew like lightning. Luke adds another little comment that he was a man of a young appearance. So here we have a, a young looking man who's an angelic being, maybe late teens, early 20s, and he's that of lightning. And the Roman soldiers feel an earthquake. They see this angel. They see this man like lightning as white as snow, and they began to shake in their boots. The word shook is the Greek word seisma. So in English, when there's seismic activity, what does that mean? Earthquake. That's the idea. They shook so hard like uh, the earth rattles when an earthquake happens and they drop dead. They literally passed out out of fear. So this angel come, the seal is broken, the stone is rolled away. These Roman soldiers, the guard, which is many of them, are all now passed out out of fear and the women can go actually into the tomb to look at it. So here's the sequence of, of events. The ladies see the empty tomb and Mary Magdalene runs back to tell the disciples. She goes and she only finds two of them. There's a guy named Peter and who do you think the other one was? John. Those are the only two she found. 
And so John is running and he's quicker. So he gets to the tomb first and he's too scared to go in. So he stops and he kind of peeks in. Well, you know, all Peter, he runs in there and he's just always just jump right in, right? Head first. And he runs right into the tomb and he sees that it's empty and both of them marvel and then they leave. Mary Magdalene, she stays and she's crying and she's weeping and she's supposing someone steals the body. Then she goes into the tomb and listen to what John tells us. He gives us a little bit more detail into this event. In John chapter 20, verse 11 and 12. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped in and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been laid. So we went from one angel that looks like lightning, that it has an appearance of a young man, and now inside the tomb, there are two angels where Jesus was laid. You have one at the foot and one at the head. Now, Bible students, where what is that picture of? Does anybody else remember a flat surface where there's an angel at the foot and at the head? Because John is telling us something very, very important. What is it? The Ark of the Covenant. Also known as what? Yes, the tabernacle. Now, what is the tabernacle? What is the purpose of the tabernacle? Look at John's looking at you like you're a little teacher's pet. <laughs> what is the purpose of the tabernacle? It is where God and man would meet. And there the lid was an angel on one side, the foot, and an angel at the head, and the 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 wings would touch. And the ark or the tabernacle was the place where God would meet man. Now, after the wandering wilderness, Israel was established and God or David wanted to build God a temple. He wanted to build God a house, but he couldn't. So his son Solomon built it. And Solomon built this extravagant temple, again, with this picture of angels at the foot and the head. And there the presence and the glory of God would fill the holy of holies. So God's presence went from a tabernacle in an ark to a tabernacle in the temple. And then a person comes along named Jesus. And John tells us, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. And we beheld his glory of that of the only begotten son, full of grace and truth. Jesus would pass the temple and he says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. And John says, and this he spoke of his what? body. What is John telling us when he's adding this detail that there's an angel at the foot and an angel at the head? The presence of God was first with the ark, and then it was with the temple, and then it was Jesus. That Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. He is the manifestation, incarnation, the full representation of God here on earth. Taking it one step further, Jesus in Acts 1 ascends to heaven. Who descends down to heaven in Acts 2? Come on, you got my sermon or what? The Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit descends and then fills the life of the believer. So the temple of God where God dwells on earth is not a box, is not a building. Christ is in heaven. So who and what is the temple of God? You, the church. John is telling us that Christ is the incarnate God. And here, look at the, what the testimony of the angels is. Going back to Matthew chapter 28. He says, do not be afraid. For I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Do you know how many times Jesus said, I will die, I will be buried, and I will rise again? We don't know how many times, but we have at least 18 records in the New Testament, in the Gospels of him saying that. Now, sometimes they were the same event recorded by all the different writers. But nonetheless, Jesus said it over and over and over again, even outside of what was recorded in this book. He said, I will die, I will be buried, and on the third day, I will rise again. And here the angel is testifying, he is not here. He has risen just as he has said. Come, See the place where he was lying. So this is the time when Mary goes in. She sees the two angels bookending where he had laid. And then verse 7, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now, the angel says to these ladies twice, He has risen. And the, the way it's written in Greek is it's a past completed event and the repercussions are going to this very day. So for example, if I say I hit a home run and we won the World Series, you would interpret that and say, okay, me hitting the home run is a past event. The game is over. And what's the repercussions of me hitting that home run? We won the World Series. What if I said, I took a test and I scored perfect on my SATs and I can go to any university I want? You know that me taking the test is a past event. It's a completed event. And what are the repercussions? I can choose any university I want to. I can be admitted anywhere we want to go. When the angel is saying he is risen, it's the same idea. He, it's a past completed event, the resurrection, and there are repercussions because of that event that hold to this present day. So before Denisa puts that slide up, what are some of the major significant repercussions of the resurrection? What are some of the significant things that occur because Jesus rose from the dead? What's the purpose of the resurrection? So number one, we have salvation. What else? So salvation is kind of tied into that idea of eternal life. What else? Because Jesus rose from the dead, what are we then given? What has been therefore verified? Heaven. So that's again the idea of salvation and eternal life. That's good. What else? Inheritance. Okay. What else? Restitution. So we have salvation. 
What else do we got? What does it say about Jesus himself? So there are some people in the Bible who have risen from the dead, but what did they end up doing again? Dying. Jesus died. He was rose from the dead. And did he have to die again? He ascended to the Father. So what is that a declaration of his person? That he is God. What else does it, what else does the uh, resurrection symbolic or signify or verify? So it, it, it establishes what Jesus went up to heaven and the Holy Spirit came down and what was established? The church. And then how do we know about Jesus? How do we know about the church? How do we know about salvation? How do we know about any of that? The Word of God. So when you think about the resurrection, it establishes or verifies many things. The four major ones is number one, that we have salvation in Christ. If Jesus is a dead Savior, how could He save you? Right? If He couldn't save Himself and He never rose from the dead, how would He ever be able to save you? But the fact that He did rise from the dead means there is salvation. So look at Romans chapter 4. And this is the first significance of the resurrection. Romans 4, verses 24 and 25. Paul writes, But for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in Him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, and He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, and was raised... Now, if anybody's there in verse 25, it says, because Jesus was raised because of what? Our justification. That means he, our forgiveness of sin, our being right before God and our receiving salvation. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if we have hope in Christ, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you are still in your sins. And we are gathering here on Sunday morning for absolutely no reason. But verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So number one reason, Jesus rose to the grave or rose from the grave. And what's the major significance? We have what? Salvation through his work. What's number two? It's right there on the screen. Or it should be right there on the screen. Number two, the resurrection validates the deity of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by what? The resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus was declared the son of God with power through what event? The resurrection. Number three, it establishes the church. 
the resurrection establishes the church. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 22 and 23. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills in all in all. Jesus rose from the dead and the church was then established. Without the resurrection, there is absolutely no salvation and there is no church. Here's the last thing. It validates that the word of God is true because we have this amazing thing called prophecy. Now, last week I was in children's and I was asking the children, I was like, hey, do any of you ever question God? Do you ever question the Bible? Do you ever question that this is actually real or not? Do you know how many kids said yes and raised their hand? 100%. Every single one of them said, yeah, I've questioned if the Bible is real, if God is real, if this whole thing is actually real or not. Every one of them. You know, we're told not to question these things. And I said, it's okay to question, but it's even more important to find out the answers. And so we began to talk about how we can really, truly believe. And one thing we were showing them, me and my wife, last week was prophecy. That God says things before they happen so that when they happen, we can believe. The resurrection from the dead was prophesied about way back when, actually a thousand years before the event. So in Acts chapter 2, there, Paul, uh, Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And he says in Acts 2, verse tw- uh, 24 through 28, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says to him, now this is Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, written a thousand years before Christ. I saw the Lord always in my presence. For he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh will also live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now, another name for Holy One in in Hebrew is Messiah. What's the Greek word for Messiah? Christ. You will not allow your Christ to undergo decay. How long did it take for the Jews to believe that the body went under decay? Anybody know? After the third day, the body began to decay. Here David is writing and he says, God will not allow his Christ to undergo decay. A testimony and a hint to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the Resurrection is paramount to our faith, and it also allows us to trust the word of God more. So the first group we have the report are the angels. Now let's look at the second group, and we've already touched on them, the women. Verses 8 through 11, or 8 through 10 in Matthew 28. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. 
Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. So Mary Magdalene had already seen the risen Lord. She had come back to the tomb, and now these three ladies are leaving, and Jesus meets all three of them, Mary, Mary, and Salome. And Jesus says a few words. It says in our text that he greeted them. That's a formal greeting. And the word is all hail. So Jesus comes before the three ladies and he says this greeting, all hail. Now, as time goes on, what is that greeting for? Who was that specific greeting for? For Caesar and the kings. You would see even in medieval times, they'll say, all hail King Henry. And then what does the all the crowd supposed to do? Bow. They're supposed to bow. Here Jesus comes to these three ladies and the word greets them is the word all hail. And what do the women immediately do? They fall, they grab his feet and they begin to worship him. Here we are seeing Jesus now beginning to proclaim his deity and the women responding in submission. Here's another very interesting thing. Jesus says, go and tell my, and then what is, what is the term he uses for his disciples? This is the first time Jesus uses that word. Before they were his followers, and then they became his disciples, and then during the upper room and before his crucifixion, he called them his friends, and now we see this transition to brothers. This beautiful relationship between Christ and his followers. They were not just followers. They were not just students. They were not just his friends. They were now family. And another interesting thing. These are the first human beings to see the resurrected Lord. Why is that unique? Because they were women. Now, back in those biblical times, women weren't necessarily very high on the totem pole. In fact, the Jewish rabbis would say, I thank you, God, that I'm not a dog, a woman, or a Gentile. That was their prayer to God. So they weren't very high on the totem pole, and yet who were the very first people Jesus appeared to? These beautiful women, faithful women. They were there at his crucifixion. Do you know how many apostles were there at his crucifixion? One. All three of these ladies were there. All three of these ladies were at the tomb before the sun rose. Do you know how many apostles were there? None. All three of these women somehow believed they were going to get to the body, past the stone, past the seals, past the guards. Do you know how many apostles believed in that? None. Here they had this incredible, beautiful faith in the Lord, and God had responded by appearing to them. This incredible testimony. So they go and now they are sprinting to go talk to all the disciples and gather them all together what they had seen. Now, meanwhile, back at the ranch, we have the next group of people who report on the resurrection and they are a very interesting bunch. Look at verse 11 through 15. And this is now the report of the guards. The guards were unbelievers and the people they reported to were unbelievers and this validates again the resurrection. Now, while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. Now, the Roman guard could have five, could have 10, could have 50, 
We're not sure how big this Roman guard was, but some of them had broken off and they went to go and they reported all that had happened to the religious leaders. They go and they said, the whole night it was quiet. And as it's starting to get dawn, all of a sudden lightning came. And there was this, this figure, this young man, this angel. And there was this great earthquake. And the seals were broken. And the stone was rolled away. And then all of a sudden we shook and we were out. And we wake up and the stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. And strangely enough, the, the linen that he was buried in is folded nice and neatly. And we have no idea what has taken place. They go and they actually tell the truth. Now, what is the motive for the Roman soldiers to actually tell the truth? None. There's no motive at all because Roman law says, that if your prisoner is uh, who is under your custody is gone, if they happen to break away, if they become free under your watch, you are then executed. You are then to take their punishment. So all of these Roman guards would have been under Roman law crucified, just like Jesus was crucified. If you look at Acts chapter 16, if not, I could just read it to you. Acts 16, 25. It says, but at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. Why did the, the guard pull his sword and wanting to kill himself? Because they were going to crucify him. And he says, I'd rather die by my own sword and die quickly than spend hours and hours and hours suffocating to death on the cross. So when you think of that context, what motive do these Roman soldiers have to say, hey, something happened and we lost the body. None. For a, a crime to take place, you have to have a motive. There has to be intention behind action. There is no motive here. This is a strong validation to the credibility of the resurrection because these guys have no skin in the game. So they go and they tell all that had happened to the high priest. And look at verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together. Now this is the Sanhedrin. This is the 70 uh, Jewish leaders known as the Is Israeli Supreme Court. They were the ones like our Supreme Court who had the final say of the matter. So they hear the testimony and the Sanhedrin gather together and they say, we have a big problem. This Jesus who we've been trying to kill since he was a little baby under Herod. And he's been a thorn in our flesh this entire way. We finally have him killed. And now they're saying that he's alive. Now they're saying the tomb's empty. What are we going to do? So they begin consulting with one another. And here is their strategy. And it's just like in our world. When the truth is too, too much for people to bear, you lie. And you create that lying narrative and you sell out on that lying narrative. And this is what they did. And they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
So the Roman soldiers would not go along with that. Why? What did we just say? If they fell asleep on watch, what would happen? They would be executed. So they would say, no, 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 I'm good. The Sanhedrin knew that. So look at verse 14. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. All right, so you're going to buy the soldiers off and you're going to buy the people who would execute the soldiers off. All right, verse 15. And they took the money and they did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. So there's a couple of things that had to have taken place. One, the soldiers had to accept the money. Two, the people who were in charge of the soldiers had to be bought off. Three, the soldiers had to not tell the truth. Four, the soldiers actually had to tell the lies. Five, anybody that questioned it, they were either done away with or they weren't heard. Because, think of the logic. If this lie were to be true and somebody says, okay, the Roman soldiers were asleep, the question then becomes, how do a bunch of fishermen break the seal roll away this giant tomb, take out the body, have time to fold the linen, and then leave the crime scene without any of these Roman soldiers waking up. It's not two Roman soldiers, probably not five. You're probably looking at 30, 40, 50 Roman soldiers. How do a few fishermen actually go through all of this without waking anybody up? And then if it actually did happen, why were none of the soldiers executed? I mean, it's almost like they were sponsored by Pfizer, right? Like some is real fishy going on around here. And so this lie was then propagated and it is a, val a, a validity to the resurrection. So we have the angel's testimony. We have the women testimony. And then we have the guards testimony in which they have no skin in the game. Now, verses 16 through 20, we have the disciples testimony. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey all that I had commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, this is a little tricky because we go from verse 15, which is Resurrection Sunday, and then to verse 16, which probably happens multiple weeks later. This is not the first time that the disciples actually see the risen Lord. So I have a little... uh a little schedule of Jesus appointments or Jesus showing himself to people as the resurrected Christ. So Denise, if you can flip that slide. These are the times that Jesus revealed himself to other people before verse 16. So we have Mary Magdalene. She was the first. And then we have all three of those women. And we read that account. We have Mary, Mar Mary, and Salome. And then we have uh, the people, the road to Emmaus. 
You had those two guys, they were leaving Jerusalem, they were on the road to Emmaus, and this guy just begins to tell them about Jesus. All the way from the law to current day. They go and they break bread with them, Jesus reveals himself, and he vanishes. And they're like, we have to go tell the disciples. Then in Luke 24, there's one verse where it says, Jesus appeared to Simon as well. So he appeared to Simon Peter at some point. And then we have John chapter 20. Now this is Sunday night. This is Easter Sunday night in John chapter 20, verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, that's Resurrection Sunday, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Verse 24, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the disciples, they go and they tell Thomas, and does Thomas believe? He says, unless I actually touch the holes, I will not believe. So eight days pass. Another week passes from Resurrection Sunday, and we're on John chapter 21, verse 26. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, See my hands? Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do you not, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. And, and Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet have believed. Now, who is Jesus referring to there? Us. And we're going to get to us in just a second. Then in John chapter 21, seven disciples go and they begin fishing at the Sea of Tiberias. And there Jesus is off the coast. And he says, hey, have any, have you guys caught anything? And he said, cast your net on the other side of the boat. And then they couldn't even haul it in. It was so much. And what did Peter do? He was like, I know who that is. He strips down and he just dives right in. And he begins swimming to the coast. That is the next appearance. And then we have our text going back to Matthew 28. They are heading up to Galilee, which is about 90 miles away from Jerusalem. They're on their way up there to a mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some were doubtful. Now, this is probably not referring to Thomas, and it's probably not even referring to their faith. The Greek word is hesitant. They were hesitant to worship him. Now, we don't know why some of them were hesitant. Here's my speculation. Jesus had come and appeared to them, and then he left. He had come and appeared to them and he left. He had come and appeared to them and he left throughout the week. They were probably hesitant because they were expecting him to leave again. So in the very last verse in verse 20, he says to them, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
He's probably telling them because of their hesitancy to be able to be all in for them. And so he says, hey, I'm with you, and I'm with you all the way to the very end. And so Jesus goes, and he now witnesses to his disciples, and he gives them commands. And the first command is, go therefore and make disciples. Now in Greek, it says, in your going. And that's a good word for us. When you think evangelism, we think, okay, I got to go to Africa or Indonesia, or I have to go to India, and there I can evangelize, and there I can be a missionary. As soon as you leave this door, you're in the mission field. And wherever God has you, in your going, God bless you, in your going, make disciples. So if your going is in the gym, make disciples. If your going is in the PTA meetings, make disciples. If your going is work, make disciples. Wherever you go, make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So making disciples is the process of evangelism, which is the good news. It's called evangelism, evangelical. So EV, and then what's the word in the middle? Angel. The angels gave the good news to the women. The women gave the good news to the disciples. The guards gave the good news to the, the religious leaders. Every single time the good news was shared on Resurrection Sunday, what took place? They went in their going and shared the good news. That's evangelism. The second process of making disciples is teaching them to obey all that the Lord has commanded. If we were fishermen, casting the net is in our going, catching the fish is evangelism, and discipleship is actually cleaning the fish. Discipleship is teaching people about the Lord, about the Bible. That's exactly what we're doing right now on Sunday morning. If you're an unbeliever, this may be an evangelical message. If you're a believer, this is a message of discipleship. We're growing as students in the Lord. Now, here's the fifth group. It's not in the in the text, but we can imply it. The angels saw the empty tomb, and who did they tell? They told the, the women, the ladies. The ladies saw the empty tomb in the resurrected Lord, and who do they go run and tell? The guards saw the empty tomb, and who did they run and go to tell? The disciples saw the resurrected Lord, and who did they go and tell? Out into all the what? Nations. Now, we haven't seen the eyewitness, firsthand resurrected Lord, but we believe it to be true. Because I went from a drug dealer to a preacher or because I went from a, a loose lady to somebody who was obedient to the Lord or because I went from a dishonest individual to an honest individual. I went from someone who hated God to loving God. All of us have testimony that we believe in the resurrected Lord. Now, if the angels told the women, the women told the disciples, the disciples told the world, the guards told the religious leaders, who are we to tell? everyone that we come in contact to in our going. And that's our report, that we believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. And what are the implications? We are saved. What else? Go back just a little bit. 
We are justified. What else? It's those four things. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God. What else? The church is established, and this book is what? True. Because the resurrection took place. Amen? All right, let's pray and let's get into communion. Father, we thank you, God, for this time. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. We thank you for the resurrection. We know, Lord, that without the resurrection, we are nothing. We know, Lord, that we can't have Christmas without Easter. We know, Lord God, that Jesus coming to this world means nothing unless he ascends in the manner that he ascended. We know, Lord God, that a dead Savior cannot save us. He must be alive and well. And so, Father, here we are, a group of people 2,000 years later that say we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried and he rose again the third day and he ascended to the Father. He established the church. He is the means by which we are saved. Lord God, I pray that if there is people in this place today who do not know that to be true, if they've just been on the fence with Jesus, if they know of Him, but they haven't fallen in love with Him, Lord, you say, and you call us to come, and all who come you will by no means cast out. You call us to call upon the name of the Lord. You call us by faith to trust and believe in what you have done. And you will save us, and you will fill us, and you will redeem us. If you are that person here today who is not sure that if I die today, I will be in heaven. If you haven't or don't have an intimate relationship with the Lord, if you haven't called upon His name, if you haven't believed in His work and His resurrection, with our heads down and our eyes closed in this intimate time between you and your Maker, would you just raise your hand so that we can pray for you and so that you can receive the Lord as your personal and intimate Lord and Savior? And so, Father, for those who desire to give their life to you today, for you who say, today is the day that I commit to the Lord, would you just repeat this prayer? It can be aloud. It can be in your heart. This is a time between you and your maker. Father, forgive me. I am a sinner and I fall short of your glory. And I know that the wages of sin is death. And I know that there is nothing I can do to be made right before you except believe that Jesus is the Son of God and believe that he came down to this earth and lived a perfect life. And I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and he was buried on the third day, rose again and ascended to heaven. And I believe that you will forgive me as I confess Jesus as Lord. 
Fill me with your spirit. Forgive me of your sin. And change my heart as I choose to follow after you this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to go to a time of communion. This is a time where believers and the Lord commune together at his table. And this is how we do communion here at Journey. We have the church come up in an orderly fashion and you take the Lord's body and you dip it into the juice, symbolic of the Lord's blood, and then you take communion. We ask that if you aren't a Christian or you have no desire that you just stay at your seat and there's no problem. If you're a Christian and you have animosity or sin in your life that you're unrepentant of, we just ask that you stay at your seat. There's no problem there. We want you to get right with the Lord before you come. For everybody else, we do ask that you would come forward as we take communion. Jesus said, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to just take a minute and give us all the time to just pray and get in the right mind, and then we'll begin. that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church of Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.